This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taya Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with returning guest Ken McLeod, in which we discuss the role of imagination in spiritual practice, the distinction between the vertical and horizontal dimensions of life, and the modern struggle to imagine the vertical dimension, how we might imagine a non-transactional embodiment of spiritual practice, and much more. After learning Tibetan, Ken McLeod translated for his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and helped to develop Rinpoche's centers in North America and Europe. In 1985, Kalu Rinpoche authorized Kin to teach and placed him in charge of his Los Angeles center. Faced with the challenges of teaching in a major metropolis, he began exploring different methods and formats for working with students. He moved away from both the teacher-center model and the minister-church model and developed a consultant-client model. Kin is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org, he is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Ken McLeod, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. It is a pleasure to have you, and I'm going to defer to Stuart here because he has an idea of how to frame uh, some of the topics that we've been talking about, talking about, um, just prior to the beginning of this recording. Well, we, there was a range of uh, topics we were discussing which had to do with distinctions between science and religion, the um, uh, applicability of spiritual cosmologies to the modern world and the modern mind, and the question of imagination. And... Uh, may want to start with imagination first because, Ken, you mentioned something about uh, a modern struggle with the failure to be able to imagine the vertical dimension. And in some ways that encapsulates what we might call a contemporary spiritual crisis that is being, you know, in conflict with a scientific point of view, which in many ways, excludes that kind of imagination from its um, uh, worldview. So I wanted to start there um, with this question of imagination and the vertical, just to unpack that because I think it's useful for this conversation first to draw the distinction between the horizontal and the vertical, and then from that I think we can talk about spiritual cosmologies, uh, the religious experience, and uh, the degradation of the religious experience. Well, that's a big enough topic in itself. <clears throat> I'm going to... The, the, the use of that vocabulary, vertical versus horizontal, uh, was a result of uh, reading a book by uh, Peter Sloterdijk, 
uh, you must change your life. Hmm. Uh, and <clears throat> the distinction I would make is that I, I think it's actually a Stoic idea. The, the, the vertical is that there are things that are more important in life than life itself. And so when you take that uh, point of view, it takes you out of an exclusively materialistic framework. And I would even go further than that. I would say it, it takes you out of uh, an exclusively uh, uh, sociological or societal or political framework. Uh, another way of, doing, uh, of looking at this would be from a quote by Pope Francis uh, that someone sent to me. In, uh, <clears throat> I think this was in reference to uh, COVID, but I'm not sure, maybe in reference to something else. Pope Francis said, God always forgives. We sometimes forgive. Nature never forgives. And when, he's, when I read that, I realized that he was actually talking about three different worlds in which we live. Uh, there's the world of the spirit, God. We can also say the mind and intellect to some extent. Uh, where all kinds of things are possible. There's the world of uh, human interaction and emotion. And then there's the world of matter, uh, of things, you know, planets and cells and so forth. Each of these, uh, the world of nature, each of these worlds has its own way of functioning. Uh, and it's basically its own rules of functioning. And problems arise when the methods of one or the rules of one world are applied or one attempts to apply them to another, such as uh, eugenics or taking mystical truths and trying to use them to structure a society uh, and so forth. Or, or uh, as we are living in now, an age in which the way matter operates, and even evolutionary theory, is trying to apply uh, being applied to how we should live um, as human beings, uh, leaving out the human dimension of things like love and care for each other and so forth. So I, th I hope that gives a sufficient frame to start with. Yeah, I wanted to also add that in the fourth way tradition, the <clears throat> notion of the horizontal and vertical comes up. I don't know if it's original to that tradition. Uh, it's, a, it's a concept that applies in, you know, in a lot of different traditions. Uh, Morris Nichol wrote about it in, in his psychological commentaries of the Ospensky and Gurdjieff work, in which their life is understood to have a vertical dimension, which is a dip dimension of being, and a horizontal dimension, which is the dimension of life. And the challenge for a practitioner in that tradition is that our attention is sort of mechanically drawn into the horizontal dimension so that we frame our notions of existence and our experience through uh, the stuff of life, as you were saying, and the call to action of practice of many different forms is to bring one's attention to the horizontal, which is a dimension of being or depth of being. And into the vertical. Into the vertical. Sorry, did I say horizontal? Yeah. yeah, into the vertical, which is depth of being. 
And that depth of being is, uh, can be reflected in presence, deep presence that uh, we sometimes understand holy people to have, even though they're being very ordinary in their outward manifestation, yet there's a something there that is reflective of a depth of experience or a depth of being. It's interesting. One could bring in George Lakoff here because whether we use the dimension going up, like reaching to new heights, or as you've just been using, depth and and going down and uh, having profundity and so forth, we're both talking about the vertical. And, uh, And it's very interesting to me that that metaphor of movement, which is in contrast to a plane, is something that seems to permeate human thought from a very, very long time ago. I'm thinking of Zun Zin, the um, Confucius, uh, Confucian Chinese philosopher at the end of the Warring States period, who felt that uh, human beings coming from the Warring States period, this is very understandable, were utterly depraved because they just go around killing each other. And the task of a human being was to rise above these human impulses. Hmm. And again, we're talking about the vertical there. Yeah, and I, th- I think the distinction between the noumenal and the phenomenal also captures this, that there's the phenomenal is the, the world of our senses, the world of matter, as you put it earlier. The noumenal is the world of being or the wor- world of spirit and their different universes in a sense mm-hmm. okay well but the interesting point is where they intersect of course and and how oh do they have to intersect <laughs> <laughs> you embodied person you <laughs> i'll say yes this veil of tears <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's um it's the um faculty of imagination it seems to me that is one way to configure how that intersection can be imagined, can be uh, created and be fruitful. I'm thinking of the opposite, though, at the moment, the opposite of uh, fruit, and that is the absence of imagination. We were talking about that before this conversation was discussed. And one thing that came up that I didn't mention earlier was um, Gurdjieff's uh, point that in modern times, allegory has become unintelligible to um, to most human beings whose attention is on the horizontal, as we've been discussing. Um, and you can see the manifestation of that in the literalism of in the West of, of pe- the way people understand the Bible and uh, and other um, and other writings, but. Um, but that faculty of imagination is something that I'm, I'm going to propose can help us articulate between the um, horizontal and the vertical. I think you're right. I think uh, the imagination uh, comes in some way from the vertical. Uh, here I think we need to take a look at the effect of modernism, which I'm going to, a little arbitrarily, uh, propose probably begins with the Reformation. 
usually it's put at the end of the 16th century. I would say it's more likely the beginning of the 16th century. And because it was in the face of the uh, Reformation that uh, there was a profound reaction to uh, <clears throat> the interpretation of the Bible and people were free to interpret it any way they wish. And then compound, uh, compounded with a complete reordering of the universe that took place with the uh, cosmological uh, understanding of the, of the world. Uh, those people who, uh, and the ascendancy of a scientific worldview, uh, because it had such a amazing power to predict what actually happened in the world, that was the function of science, the, both in the Catholic Church and in the Protestant churches, there was a movement which said, well, what, what are the scientists doing that we're not? And th this is detailed in Karen Armstrong's book, The Battle for God. And their answer was, oh, the scientists are speaking literally. We need, we need to speak literally. And that is where the literal interpretation of the Bible gained ascendancy. It, it, there was precursors to this back in the days of Augustine and so forth, but that's where it, it became a very strong component that the Bible had to be taken literally rather than as allegory. So I think we can argue to some extent that modernism uh, was the death of uh, allegory or resulted in the death of allegory. And I think this is reflected very strongly in Nietzsche who's uh, felt that uh, modern man, by his point, which is the end of the 20th, uh, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, had lost the ability to think allegorically. And I know that Gurdjieff had the same feeling. And he also proclaimed that God is dead. And it wasn't a cry of triumph. It was a cry of lament. Yes. Uh, and uh, and I, I think we are living in a world now which feels this very, very acutely. And yet the vertical dimension comes in the back door over and over again. And one of the problems is when something comes in the back door, it usually takes a distorted shape. Hmm. Well, I, I'm going to throw in a, a, a ringer here because I've just started reading a book by an eminent uh, archaeologist uh, from Cambridge in England, Chris Gosden. And it's called, I may get the, the uh, subtitle wrong, but it's Magic from the Ice Age to the Present. And in the beginning of this book, he makes the argument that magic, religion, and science are three threads of a helix that we cannot, that human beings need to incorporate in, into their lives. Magic is in the realm of relationship to one another and to, to the natural world. Science is the, excuse me, uh, religion is the realm of relationship to deity. And then science to is... To God and spirit. Yeah, yeah. right, right. <clears throat> um, and, then, and then science, we hardly uh, need point to, is, is stepping aside from, uh, the attempt to step aside to gain an objective view of the material world. In a certain sense, it was the same three worlds that I was talking about. Yes, exactly, and that's why I'm, that's why I'm bringing it in. But the magic adds. Uh, it, 
he differentiates it from religion um, because, um, and, and, and it's interesting to me that he does that because I think you can argue that there's a vertical dimension in magic and a vertical dimension in religion. And if they're not in the same each thread, then that, that creates the possibility of um, access to the vertical from a third or a second angle, I guess, um, assuming that we, we accept that science, while necessary, does not lead us to the, to the vertical for the most part, except insofar as Carl Sagan points to awe uh, that science can invoke. So, um, so I'm complicating it here because, because I've been very intrigued by this distinction between magic and religion and how that would uh, what the articulate dis- with, with... What miracles. is the distinction he makes between magic and religion? Magic is the realm of relationship. And it's relationship to spirits, to nature, to one another. Okay, and religion? And religion is the relationship to gods and goddesses and the divine. From from that, I I don't get a clear understanding of the distinction because gods and spirits are a little too close to me. So so, um, (laughs) that would be remiss. Really, what about bodhisattvas? (laughs) Well, yes, but that's it. I mean... What's a god? What's a spirit? There's yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I would be remiss if I didn't throw in uh, the theurgy. Uh, well, no, not theurgy. The the distinction that uh, the writer Lionel Snell uh, brings uh, yeah. up. Okay. Um, Go for it. Uh, so he takes this one step further and says that there's actually four threads, not three. Right. And he adds art to that. So you have uh, you have religion, you have science. You have magic and you have art. And then he locates these, uh, if you will, on a plane where there's a, a, a gradation between objective and subjective, and there's a gradation between concrete and abstract. So magic is the domain of the concrete and subjective. Science is the domain of the concrete objective. Art is the domain of the uh, subjective abstract and, and uh, religion is the domain of the objective abstract. So basically, religion concerns itself with divine law, uh, the way the universe is, and it treats those as truths. Science d- concerns itself with natural law. They're, they're both presuppose as some objective truth, but science is concerned with how stuff works. And um, Whereas magic is less concerned about the... Uh, Objectivity, and it's more about does something work? And, you know, what is my subjective experience? So it's the realm of like doing experiments, but recording the answers subjectively. If I have a coincidence or a synchronicity, that's a, that's a that's truth for me, as opposed to a scientist who would do a hundred runs of the same experiment and say, "Well, there's nothing there." And then art is this sort of realm of the subjective, where the the abstract in this case are, are, are movements, they're trends, there's sort of artistic theories and things like that that uh, are ever-changing because it's subjectively driven. 
So whether you buy that or not, it, it, it's a way of trying to tease apart the distinction where magic is, in this case, about the immediate subjective personal experience and it's concrete because you're dealing with like nature, you're dealing with uh, local spirits, not divine law. Well, as both of you know, I'm continuing to uh, say struggle with this book on Badriana. And one of the things that I've come to appreciate in the course of writing this book, uh, which I kind of knew, but the significance has just been greatly deepened and sharpened through this writing process, is how different the world, the way you experience the world is. When you come from, when you're in a culture in which there has been an unbroken line of evolution of uh, religion from early uh, shamanism and animism right through to the most sophisticated mysticism and everything in between. I'm talking about the Indian subcontinent here, which is where Bajrana was took birth. Whereas uh, in the West... We, we have had, I think, four or five at least major disruptions uh, and replacements uh, of that by one thing, to the exclusion of others. Mm-hmm. India was such a mass that, you know, you couldn't exclude anything because it would just go somewhere else and continue and it would come back and feed itself. So it was incredibly rich. And one of the problems that I have in writing this book is trying to convey the richness of uh, of practice and very much imagination that mm-hmm. operates in that climate compared now to uh, the, the terribly, from my perspective now, terribly fragmented and somewhat arid uh, cultural environment in which we live in the West. And I probably get a lot of criticism for making that statement, but I'll stick by it at least for the time being. Because uh, when I I listen to, oh, the new atheists and and so forth, uh, their arguments to me have all the sophistication of trying to convince a kid that there isn't a Santa Claus. Uh, And, I mean, talk about lack of imagination. Yeah. Now I'll really get criticized, but so be it. Uh, the, uh, but I see the same problem with uh, people who are uh, very, very devout in their practice, but they, they, they cannot imagine anything beyond, beyond their own belief system, which makes it very difficult for them to actually access the vertical in the way that we were referring to earlier. And then you have the uh, scientists, and the top scientists, particularly the people who are doing... Uh, astrophysical work where they're thrown into some very, very deep questions or, uh, and also uh, quantum uh, work. They're thrown in very deep questions about uh, what, you know, what is this? Uh, but 
they're also frequently characterized by a, a lack of imagination, which people like Einstein and uh, Schrodinger and the early people and back in the beginning of the 20th century, who were steeped in religious traditions, uh, you know, weren't limited in, in the same way. Uh, and, and I could go on and on. Uh, I, th- I think we see the same thing in the political realm, where there's uh, we, we now see countries falling apart because people simply cannot imagine a different world, uh, and that's that's very disheartening. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a, a piece to this that I want to return to uh, when we talk about we talked earlier about allegory, and to unpack a little bit further. Uh, Gurdjieff's uh, diagnosis of this, uh, George Gurdjieff, the what he's how he diagnoses uh, allegory is, or the loss of allegory is the failure of the feeling mind to participate in mentation. Um, so, in that tradition, we have an intellectual center, a feeling center, a body center, and when the feeling center is not participating in our mentation, we uh, do, kind of devolve into a literalism or intellectual literalism because the intellectual mind is is like the um, uh, the mind that sees parts, and the feeling mind is like the mind that sees holes, if you will. And um, this is a little bit, you know, uh, this. To me, at least, it sounds a little bit like uh, what uh, Ian McGilchrist uh, would write about in The Master and the Emissary, which was this uh, beautiful book that takes neurobiological information and philosophical information together and makes an argument that the Western mind has become more, quote-unquote, uh, I don't want to use the left and right brain exactly, more literal, you know, more more particulate, and has lost its uh, touch to this more holistic, uh, integrative uh, way of thinking. And so when I think about imagination in this context, it feels like it's a kind of a, a feeling-based or integrative kind of uh, capacity that we have, which the modern world tends to uh, diminish, in which we can see possibility and integrate possibility and connect that to the immediate experience and and in some ways envision how we get there in some ways and this is what is the fuel for transformation but it begins with this uh participation of our feeling center and when i look at some of the you know like the fundamentalist religious leaders and supreme court justices that we were talking about before recording this i see a a lack of compassion or a lack of feeling participating in their way of viewing things. I think we should be very careful there. I would say that they had feeling and compassion, but it's limited because of the lack of imagination. And that's a different statement. Yeah, I think I, that, that, that's fair. And I, I think that that's a... Uh, um, so let, let, let us, maybe we, we would say that the... Uh, organ of compassion and the organ of feeling is somewhat stunted in that it's uh it is constrained be, uh within a very narrow intellectual framework and yeah. i'd like to go with that because as we're talking now uh in mahayana buddhism which is my training uh 
one is challenged by the Bodhisattva vow, which is you know, a vow to undertake spiritual practice with a view to uh, helping all beings become free of the vicissitudes of life. Uh, not to leave life, but to find a relationship with life in which they don't experience constant struggle and suffering. And I, I, last month or so, I, I translated a, a prayer by one of the founders of the tradition I was trained in, which uh, puts all of this in, in, into words. And talk about imagination. I mean, it goes back to the Avatamsaka Sutra, clearly, which is the flower garden, one of the largest sutras, which is just an incredible exercise in imagination of, of worlds within worlds and interpenetrating and uh, absolutely infinite scope. And I'm as you were talking, I was beginning to appreciate the fact that the, the one is given this challenge or assumes this challenge in Mahayana practice. It necessarily feeds or uh, requires one to feed the imagination, uh, nourish it, because uh, you're asked, you're asked, being asked to relate on a feeling level with every other being in the universe. Hmm. So it's 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 a way of avoiding uh, the the stunting or the uh, limitation <clears throat> of, of of compassion, and it, uh, and it's and this is really at a mystical level, but but it requires incredible imagination. And one of the things that this prayer concludes, and it's something I've heard voiced in other ways, that uh, in Buddhist mythology there are a thousand Buddhas in this you know, vast expanse of time of which Buddha Shakyamuni, the Buddha we know about, was the fourth. So there's another 999, 996 to come. And so what is the aspiration? To do as much for sentient beings as all of the thousand Buddhas that have come before me. Which is kind of, you know, in one sense, it's just completely megalomania, but it's incredibly huge aspiration. Mm -hmm. And it forces, if you have such a huge aspiration, it forces you to engage a similarly huge imagination. I hadn't really made the connection between imagination and this uh, notion of, uh, of having a very, very widespread feeling context. Yeah, it's interesting because the, the, I was uh, just as you were describing that, I was thinking about meta-meditation practices that uh, progress well, with this imaginal level of imagining. Ideally. Yeah, yeah ideally. <laughs> ideally. But, I, but it is that one is imagining someone that's close to you and giving them good wishes and imagining someone that you don't know who's, and, yes. and, give, and sending them love and compassion and then imagining someone that you really have a hard time with. And well, I, you're quite right. I mean, I had a student uh, who's a businessman who's a, a headhunter at the sea level, basically. And uh, when he came to see me, or started with me, he was a Fox News Republican. Hmm. And uh, in the course of his work, uh, at some point or other, I introduced him to the four measurables. And in the way that uh, I taught them, uh, starting one of the ways that we do in the Mahayana, start with equanimity rather than loving kindness. And uh, so he was doing very well in his 
equanimity practice. And, and, and uh, he said, so how do I take this to the next level? I said, okay, in your equanimity practice, I want you to take Bill Clinton and George Bush. And he went, you're out of your blank mind. <laughs> I said, no, that's your practice now. I know you're a great fan of George Bush, and you absolutely hate Bill Clinton. That's fine. Work on them with equanimity. And there's a, there was a procedure to do this. And so what I was forcing him to do, or telling him to do, was to um, extend his field of imagination. Mm-hmm. And he had really ha- he had to imagine uh, in in the exercise you imagine people do people that you like doing things that you wouldn't like. And when does it change when you no longer like them? And the same thing when people that you don't like imagine them doing things like you do like, like saving your son from drowning. So when do your feelings change in this? And you begin to see that your feelings are actually arbitrary. They depend on a whole bunch of conditions and it doesn't have so much to do with who they are as people and what happens in between the two of you. And he, I give him credit. He did this exercise and he really did it. And he came in rather shocked that it was possible to change such deep-seated convictions through the imagination. Hmm. Well, you were, you were uh, saying in our earlier conversation before this one uh, that um, one of the things that uh, my favorite uh, writer, Ursula Le Guin, um, was, a, was a great advocate for. She even said this in, in uh, uh, some of her most famous speeches accepting uh, literary awards that imagination is a faculty that we need to treasure, we need to promote. And, um, and, and so what I'm hearing so far here, she, she I think, was um, not necessarily expressing this with regard to the uh, vertical spiritual domain quite as explicitly as you just uh, were outlining, Ken. But... But also in what you said is the um, the effect it can have on the horizontal yes. as well, and that's and that's what I'm that's what I, you know when I when I uh, first spoke this this morning um, I, I'm interested in the intersections and how these and how because because I think all too readily for many decades as um, non Christian practices have propagated in in the west there's a there's been an ungrounded focus on the vertical and attempting to leave behind the horizontal in a in an unhealthy and unsustainable way and um, and I, and so and so that's why the intersection of these two is important it seems to me I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the I think an important part of that intersection is respecting how each of the three worlds that we've talked about work and not trying to constrain or require one world to operate in the way of another world. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking I already mentioned the things like trying to apply evolutionary theory to 
yeah, society, which leads to disaster, but uh, also trying to apply mystical insights and understandings to society, hmm. likewise leads to disaster. We'll give an example for our, for our, our listeners of, of what where you think communism is. communism essentially is a way of applying mm. a mystical understanding of humanity that you know, the, the natural perfection of the human being and it just completely ignores the operation of human greed and the result in that is that you have greedy people who take over the society and dominate it and exploit others and uh, you know okay. and so in, forth. in the name of their ideal in the main name of the of the ideal that that's one example but mm -hmm. uh, uh, almost all totalitarian uh, systems sure. derive their rationalization from mystical ideas ideals and, and um, totalitarian theocracies as well. Well, exactly, yeah. And case in point. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's, that's an example of how the application of mystical insights mm -hmm. to Good. society don't, don't operate. But in the same way, <clears throat> when you try to apply the way nature operates to mystical work, that just falls flat immediately. <laughs> uh, it doesn't work at all. Because when you try to investigate something with the tools of science, say, mm -hmm. you, the underlying premise is that you're trying to predict and control. Well, when you move into the mystical realm, prediction and control kind of go out the window. And well, this is this is why I'm, I'm glad I brought in the, mag, the magic thing. I know I know it's not resolved for you or for me, for that <laughs> matter, um, at this point, but. Um, I'm going to I'm going to suggest that the uh, the realm of, of magic and by the way I, I, I'm only uh, I'm not very far into this book that I referred to by Gosden earlier but but the point he's making I think is that you only start to get religion in the way that he defined it um, later on in human history remember he's an archaeologist and he's looking from tens of thousands of years in the past and looking at the material culture evidence we have for magical practices and, and the um, uh, inferred relationships to nature um, there. And that's a very different relationship to nature than the one you were just um, pointing to uh, that science attempts to... Uh, well, it's also very different, course. really, from uh, the, the milieu in which Vajrayana well, I, when you were saying, uh, uh, you were bringing up this point earlier, and, and what I was, because you, you said there, here's this uh, context with this long, long history of development, and what I thought you were going to be, because uh, you started off with shamanism, which would be a magical practice as, as defined by Gosden. Uh, I thought you were going to talk about Tibet itself as opposed to the entire subcontinent of India. And, and and I understand why you, why 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 you why you went there, but um, but I suspect that Tibet might be a sh shorter time frame um, in which to examine how these how these how magic what he what Gazan is defining as magic and religion um, interpenetrate. I, actually, I think Tibet is 
somewhat anomalous. Mm-hmm. I think the Indian subcontinent provides a much fuller. Okay. Uh, well, you know, you know yeah, Tibet better than it, I. Because Tibetan Buddhism consists of these two slices of that Indian culture, one from the 8th century and one from the 11th century. <laughs> right, well, right there, you're, you're beyond my depth. So. But, but it's also mixed in with a shamanistic tradition, too, right? Well, well, I think as we've discussed before, when Buddhism comes into a culture, Buddhism is primarily a mystical system. And it tends to let the culture have its own folk religion yeah. And the mysticism comes in above that, and they work out a very happy integration. It looks very different in Thailand and Malaysia and Burma. Well, not Malaysia so much, but Burma uh, compared to how it does in Japan, you know, yeah. and, and so forth. Probably but, more analogous to Santeria and uh, Vudon. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and the Catholic and, Church. And the, this is one of the reasons why I say it's, I, I think it's better to look at Buddhism as a collection of religions rather than a religion, hmm. because. Uh, when you contrast uh, the way, like, Chinese Chan was just totally different in character from Japanese Zen. Yeah. And and neither of them looked anything like uh, Theravadan monasticism. And then you have the Tibetan richness of all, all of these... Deities, you know, yeah, it's, it's just a little totally bit like yeah. I think you could say the same thing about Hinduism. Even the word Hindu uh, is a construct that the British applied to try to uh, to categorize things. Well, yeah, yeah to, to turn it into a religion in the sense that uh, in the sense they understood yeah, religion. But it's actually an interesting point because uh, you could probably make the same argument about Christianity. I mean. Uh, well, is, I think the, the Quakers, the Eastern Orthodox, a, a uh, evangelical Protestant, the Catholic Church, these things are different religions. Well, our, our mutual friend Jim Wilson recently sent an email to all of us where he proposed that um, that Eastern Orthodox folks and Quakers would understand both of them themselves to be doing Christianity. And I, and I pushed back on it. I haven't had a response from him yet. But I, I, I'm not sure that most that most Eastern Orthodox Christians would recognize Quakers as Christians. Well, there's a long Quietist tradition in the Orthodox. That may well be, but that doesn't mean that the um, uh, the, the the origin of the Quakers may be, but the contemporary manifestations in um, the United States. I'm not sure that they would see that as anything as much more than a, a liberal political club. Yeah, well, you're talking about a split within the Quakers between the creators and the activists. True. <laughs> That's true, but there's there's not so many quietists left <laughs> in the Quakers, well, as I understand it. Well, and that's that speaks to what we're talking about, because there's the loss of the vertical dimension. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the center That's of gravity true. becomes more uh, to the world and the concerns of the world. Which is an interesting point that even some uh, 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 religious writers. I'm thinking of. I think it's Rob Dreyer. Right? Rod Dreyer uh, was, you know, in his Benedict Option, actually speaks to uh, a recommendation for to be a good Christian. You need to withdraw from the world in a certain kind of way, and this politicization of religion is actually doesn't doesn't serve the heart of the tradition. Well, the problem with Dreyer, though, is that he, he wants to have it both ways. Oh, yes. <laughs> he, want, he wants to apply his, 
his political values onto religion. Right, yeah, right. Onto, onto society. And vice yeah, versa. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <clears throat> but, uh, but again, if we appeal to the three worlds <clears throat> model, <clears throat> there's uh, mysticism is primarily a, a journey into the interior. Yes. Uh, and is not antithetical, but is different from uh, living in the uh, human society, which is primarily about relationships. Yes. Um. Now, it's not to say that one is more valuable than the other, but that both of them need to be respected for the ways that they work. And that, I think, learning to live in all three worlds at the same time, I think, is, is, is the best to do it. Because they interact in extremely complex and sometimes very subtle ways. Mm. And the interest, you know, what is, like, Mother Nature has her earthquakes and hurricanes, which are devastating to this, uh, the world of human society and, and uh what, what we build you know, mm-hmm. in terms of cities and lives and things like that. And it's not that Mother Nature is wreaking havoc on us, it's just she's doing her thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, uh, and we ourselves are doing Mother Nature's thing when we build cities, because cities are to human beings what termite hills are to termites. Uh, except that we, they've instituted imbalance and now we're facing the consequences of that imbalance basically we have not paid enough attention to how mother nature functions and we've sought to override that yeah and 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 the scale of our interaction with i mean it's, it's a failure of imagination to recognize the scale of our interaction with the processes of nature has created these um um, these terrible fires, um, floods, etc. Yeah, and not just here, but also in Europe. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and also the floods of refugees and so forth. And if we introduce the third world, uh, the, you know, the world of the spirit, it, it's that we have done this because we have only valued the world of matter and the world of human society, and we've neglected the world of the spirit. And if there's a reevaluation a recalibrating of that or reconfiguring of that, which is what then it offers the possibility of balance. Yeah, and the thing that I'm coming back to in this discussion is that uh, first, first I agree with what you're saying that the the need for that balance is both essential to our survival, but uh, I think our uh, uh, right. I don't know, it seems like the birthright to live in balance in those three worlds is um, essential to being a spiritual being in a body in, in, a, in a universe. But what I, I, I want to go back to the, you know, I'm, I'm kind of circling around this question of imagination and the story you told about the student who had been the Fox News Republican and the how imagination works to address this issue is an interesting question to me because most of the time and, and, and even in some traditions imagination is you know considered fantasy you know it's like disconnected from reality but 
we're talking about a kind of imagination which allows us to expand beyond our preconceptions and open ourselves to the possibility of otherness and then to return into ourselves with a broader perspective and allow that to work and to move. Just So an example is your uh, friend you were describing imagines compassionately Bill Clinton, let's say save, saving his uh, son from drowning, that the strength of that imaginal um, form allows his feeling center to respond to that. And in that response, there's a shift. There's a movement and a, po a new possibility is present there. It's almost like stretching in yoga or something like that. It's like imagination is, if you will, yoga for the, uh, the heart because you're stretching your capacity and the range of your feeling. And when you do that, you can become more responsive to the world as it is. Yes, but that's not the point. Well, that's an interesting question because I'm, I'm, I'm saying that I, I'm actually saying that it's part of the point or it, it, is, a, it is a vehicle for uh, attaining to the point. Well, <clears throat> here we enter into a different discussion. <laughs> that is a utilitarian approach to religious practice, which I... Uh, I mean, I'm a mystical I, positivist. <laughs> this is the positive part. Yes, the positivist part. I'm still working on that. <laughs> uh, these are the side effects of religious practice. And I, and I think it's actually uh, very important that they're recognized as the side effects. And, you know, they're very nice, very good side effects. But if, if you then practice in order to do that, you've moved into the area of practicing in order to make your life better. And, or and to now, make yourself better. Yeah, and now you're back into the human realm. You're not in the vertical dimension anymore. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I know that you, you've um, brought up this, this uh, if, uh, if not question, even critique of uh, the way that many spiritual traditions are framed as transactional, that, that I do this, I get something. Yes. And so I was, I was indeed uh, <clears throat> framing a transactional form, uh, but... I guess even the language, though, that you used earlier, which is to talk about the harmonization of the three worlds, or to live in the three worlds in harmony, is a outcome um, of practice. And and so even by framing it in that way, there seems to be a... A it's hard. It, a, a, you know, it's really hard for us to get out of that transactional... Uh, and that is why the vertical dimension is so important, because the self gets nothing out of the vertical. Mm. Uh, so, well, so, so let me just jump in there briefly. Um, does that mean that the mystical is about service to something other than the way we usually conceive of ourselves? I would say that is a path... Definitely. Okay. I'm not sure. It's you're, not, you're not sure it encompasses but, but, the entirety. Yes. So, okay. But then, and, and this goes back to the conversation we had with Norm Fisher mm -hmm. when we asked about what are the responsibilities of a mystic, uh, and that's that's uh, another question which would, we we've got certain way along that, but we certainly didn't finish it. But right. uh, but absolutely, for many uh, people who aspire to mystical understanding. 
their path is through a life of service, no question. Yes. Okay. So, so I want to be clear though, because we you threw out the word self, and self is uh, um, uh, many definitions. Yeah, well, yes. uh, there's small, small s self, there's big s self, uh, you, big, 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 big I'm s. Sorry, self. I, I'm sorry, Stuart. You know exactly what I meant. Time <laughs> 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 to be of service to our listeners. <laughs> if any of them are still with us at this point. <laughs> Well, uh, may I suggest you uh, give them the benefit of the doubt? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, nice one. <laughs> All right, touche. <laughs> well, I didn't mean to be scoring points, but no, I think that given who your listeners are, yes. when I used self in that sense, they probably knew what, yeah. what I was trying to convey. So I'd, I, I, I would like you to take another tack into this. All right. Um. <laughs> I guess the 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 small self gets it, to your point. Then, if it, to the extent that we get something out of it, whether we get in our lives a sense of uh, integration, peace, or contentment, that's a byproduct, and not the point of uh, the the vertical realm. But but you also talked about the balance of the two, of the vertical and the horizontal. Well, but let, let me get back to, before, I mean, I'm happy for Ken to address that, that point, but I, I want to make sure that I understand um, that when I suggested service, um, I think, and, and you said, well, that's a way, to, being of service is a way. I'm not talking necessarily, but certainly I would include it, of being of service to other beings in the horizontal realm who feel trapped in the horizontal and need an injection or could benefit from an injection of a vertical perspective. I'm also talking about, is there something in that vertical dimension itself unrelated to the horizontal that one might serve? Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm asking. Yes, I think so. Okay. I mean, if you look at mystics in the course of history, some of them made huge contributions to the world in terms of their writings. But we have no idea how many never put anything down, never did anything with them. Yeah, and there are probably thousands and thousands of those. Yes. Uh, I've been. I'm reading a book right now by uh, on uh, Dogen's Genjo Kon, one of his primary works. And uh, the student, uh, the person, the author of the book, turns out to be a student of a. Japanese teacher who's uh, one of whose books I, I just love. His name is Uchiyama Roshi. Uchiyama Roshi retired from being an abbot after 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly enough, exactly the same time that Tomi Sonko retired and then spent the rest of his life in retreat. Uh, he was pursuing mystical practice vertical but he retired from a life of service, you might say. And uh, 
that, and so that's why I say it is uh, a way. Yeah. So, and, and, and when I look at my own, as as you know, I experienced quite a bit of difficulty at certain points in my life. And a question that I've been asked not infrequently is, why didn't you stop? Hmm. And I've, I had to examine that as deeply as I was capable of, mm-hmm. from psychological, psychodynamic, you know, all these different perspectives. And the only thing I can say is, and still operates in me today, is the idea of stopping doesn't occur to me. Mm-hmm. Never did. I, it, it's, and yet I can't find any evidence that I'm uh, obsessed or out of balance mm-hmm. in that way. Uh, and, uh, well, I've made a few small contributions to uh, people in terms of teaching and so forth. That isn't why I practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it has nothing to do with that. Right. It com- it, that comes out of it, but it isn't. It isn't the reason. So I, 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 I don't see it. Service isn't the path. To, isn't the path to me? Is what I'm saying. Right, and, I, and I'm and I, well, knows how much trouble I'm getting into in this conversation. Well, uh, um, <laughs> I'm trying. It's about to, time. <laughs> I'm trying to distinguish the service of being an abbot, as you were describing in that particular example, to the service of mystical practice, which where the world knows nothing of. What's going yeah. on? I prefer to use the word calling. Okay. Uh, because of the connotations of service. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, well, there are two. Would there not then be two callings? Yes. What are you talking about? Uh, uh, the, the two. Uh, service to the service as, uh, uh, for example, or uh, as abbot and service as. Um, mystic, retired from the world. Yeah, I, I would actually call one service and one a calling. So, I... Okay, I guess well, that's just language. Yeah, I mean, I might... But that's the distinction I want to make. Yeah, okay. okay. No, but, I, but, I, but I, you know, the, the, the notion of service is... Uh, uh, doesn't have to be things we do with our body. I mean, if someone is truly going within... I would argue that they're, they're energetically there's a something going on there that is a benefit to humans in general. And you can say no or not. You know, uh, I, 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 I see that that way. That, you know, that, that's why I don't discount, you know, I don't think going into the cave and meditating is a selfish act. It, it is... You know, I, I don't mind the word calling because it sort of gets us out of the, the transactional realm, which, which, is, which, is, which is what you're trying to do. But I wouldn't discount that someone doing that may be serving a purpose or may, may be doing something that enriches the uh, humanity as a whole. Well, historically, you can argue that. Metal Repa hung out in the mountains of Tibet and... Uh, 
has had huge uh, repercussions you know, throughout centuries, for over a thousand years. Right. Uh, but that wasn't his intention. Well, but um, what about Christian mystics who, who see themselves as serving God directly? Yes. Uh, and, and that's, I think the vocabulary of Christianity invites that. Uh, and yes. it, it defines a, a relationship. I'm, again, as what Stuart says, I, I want to move it out of the, the, uh, the somewhat transactional framework of even service into okay. uh, something, because I've really come to feel that, again, this goes to the matter of imagination. Mm-hmm. I, I, to me, it's been very, very important to imagine a way of living that isn't transactional. And that is one of the reasons why I paid such attention to vocabulary. It's my own, an aspect of my mm-hmm. own practice is to, uh, to to get out of that. And uh, and and so, uh, and I've, as you know, very influenced by David Graeber here and, and his mm-hmm. uh, his book. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I found it when I, when I look at how. Uh, the, the Bodhisattva ideal, which has been, is always very important to me, and I, and I cannot tell you why. Mm-hmm. But from the moment I've heard it, and I know my rea- my response to it was very different from other people's response, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it, it just struck a chord. Uh, it is about living in a completely non-transactional way. Well, even though it's often defined in terms of service, service to uh, things like that, but. But, it, but it's not transactional if the uh, uh, the the end is infinite. Well, that... yeah, I mean, I wrote an article on Bodhicitta for Tricycle a few years ago, and I closed it. You have all the freedom of the sun that shines on the earth, giving warmth to everybody. You have all the freedom of the rain which pours on the earth, providing nourishment. You have all the freedom of the wind. This is the kind of, you know, is all of that service to people? Yes, but that. But isn't the point? Uh, it's a, the the point is uh, being uh, being, yes. being authentic in a in a radiating in a way that by its nature will be of benefit, but no particular benefit is the point. Is that? But, but benefiting isn't the point. It's it's right. something that again, this is a side, like the side effect. <laughs> it, well, yes, yes, and I mean this maybe takes me to the uh, the the. The, the Gurdjieffian cosmology, which uh, in some respects is, it's not exactly transactional, uh, but it is. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it's everything eats everything else in the sense that we're, we're food Sucks. for higher beings and we, uh, 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 we eat lower beings and, and that there's a... He wasn't but, influenced by Darwin, was he? <laughs> <laughs> well, except this is a divine vision, so... Uh, <laughs> But but the the ultimate expression of the creation is a, a divine expression, which, in a sense, radiates out and then rebounds again. Well, and, I, and I find something very similar in this book that I'm reading on Genjo Kon, is that uh, in Buddhist terms, and again this moves it out of the transactional interdependent origination, Pratyutsamutpada, and this is a theme that Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, emphasizes in his teaching is that uh, we are what we are is everything in the world yeah we are we yeah. are defined by relations in a sense and, and, and Gurdjieff may have formulated that in terms of uh, 
being proved for. Uh, exchanging energy. Yeah, exchanging. Yeah. yeah, but the the formulation is a pre-transactional form uh, you know it, it's something that developed before transactional thinking took over those cultures well when when everything is relational in that way in a way that I, there isn't an endpoint there is i mean transactions almost sort of uh, uh presuppose a destination i'm going to get to this place whereas there's no getting to that place because it's always yeah. Uh, well, first of all, there's no one to get there, except a ripple and a wave of relationships, and so and there's which, no place which, which in time will dissolve anyway. Right, exactly and, and there's no place yeah. because uh, not that not that everything but, but, is uh, but, but, relative. But if you if you if you just take that and imagine, here we are back at imagination. But imagine living that way. What happens? Then uh, the word that jumped into my mind was the the Sanskrit word lila, play. It's like yeah, okay. then, then it's it's just yeah. like the the effulgence of being, just okay. and, and creativity. And, and, and that is why I think it is so important to get out of any sense of transactional thinking because it opens up exactly that kind of possibility. Right. Why, why and, and, do I why do I paint a picture? It's not to like sell you know something yeah. uh it's it's just the creative act in that moment yeah why do you plant a flower what's the point of planting a flower they'll all die away look how beautiful they are yeah <laughs> we it's, have some beautiful this, flowers moment, before us on the yeah, table unfortunately <laughs> this is not a video call <laughs> <laughs> well then um but to underscore the point i just made so is there a beauty that can as thing can be appreciated in that process that you're describing. Undoubtedly, I mean, I mean, look at our friend Jim and his uh, fascination and uh, enjoyment with Plotinus. Hmm. Uh, you know, Plotinus created this incredible system which he just loves. But people feel the same thing about Longchenpa. Uh, who's a Tibetan uh, mystic. Uh, Jigme Lingpa's poems are as a 17th century mystic. Uh, you look at the people who create things like the uh, uh, Sophia in uh, Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and in every tradition, beauty has, is one of the products that comes out. But I... And, that to me is incontestable. The, but the pursuit of beauty, I'm not sure that is a fair way of characterizing the mystery. Yeah, no, I wasn't, and I wasn't suggesting that. Yeah, but I just and, to and yeah, yeah, I mean, so it seems to me, I mean, uh, in this last uh, skein of conversation, we're we're approaching um, uh, process as opposed to thingness and um, um, and if the calling that you're describing is understood as a process complete in and of itself then um, then that makes more sense to me um, uh, drops of dew may may fall along the way <laughs> But that, as you're saying, is not the point. No, and the point, it's very difficult to say what the point is. 
Well, and, and, I, and I think I, I, I like to encourage people to respect that. To respect that it's difficult to say what it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that, I mean, sometimes awakening has been likened to being, finding yourself in free fall and that there's no, there's no absolute frame. Yeah, but that's putting the emphasis on awakening. Yeah, I, I understand. I, now, I, now you're awake. What do you do? Well, that's 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 the point. Yeah. I mean, that's it's like uh, you're you you wake. Let's let's say you suddenly realize yourself in free fall. That's like all all point and all purpose mm-hmm. falls away. So, so it is an interesting question. Of what do you do? You're reminding me of a cartoon that somebody sent to me, which I really wish I'd kept. It is two cells. In the first cell, it shows two people, a dog, and a rooster. And the background is completely black. And the two people are obviously terrified. The dog is absolutely out of his mind, and the rooster's feathers are all ruffled. And the caption is, six seconds after falling into a bottomless pit. (laughs) The next cell shows the same absolutely black background. One of the men is smoking a pipe. The other is reading a book. The rooster is happily curled up asleep. And the dog is quietly at peace. Six months after falling into... (laughs) (laughs) And... In most, uh, certainly in Buddhism, but I think in many other spiritual traditions, a tremendous amount of attention is placed on awakening, mm-hmm. not in living awake. Because that's actually far more difficult to talk about. Yeah, I mean, some uh, we have a friend who likes to use the word living transcendence. And, Fair enough, and uh, you know, and that—that's actually a subject of study, where, where he goes and talks to different uh, teachers and uh, what he calls exemplars uh, to try to understand, you know, how it is these people live uh, or embody an intuition of transcendence in in their lives. Well, in the Zen tradition, and also. Pretty much in the Vajrayana tradition, you know, you become completely ordinary. Mm-hmm. But in that ordinariness, there is a deep respect for the three worlds that we, and, 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 the, and the appropriate domains of each of those three worlds. Uh, but it's utterly ordinary. <laughs> well, it's like, uh, you know, my, my training... Um, you could say, I mean, I, I wouldn't generally do so, but but in a sense, I was trained in in courtesy. The um, uh, the courtesy of recognizing the connection and the, and the differentiation simultaneously, and. And, um, and, and, and of course, when you're embodying that skillfully, it is, um, 
it is beautiful. Yeah. And it is ordinary. I think that's very well said, Robert. I like I like that. It's, it's uh, I, I, I can recognize my own efforts in that direction in what you say. It's funny that our uh, our teacher Robert uh, Ennis would refer to extraordinary ordi- ordinariness. Yes, yeah. but that that's that was his um, vision of practice or or uh, living living transcendence, if you will. But uh, th- this is what I think is the opening of the Diamond Sutra, because the Diamond Sutra opens with uh, Subhuti who's the interlocutor, Mm -hmm. observing Buddha coming back from his begging rounds. And he says, he comes in, uh, takes off his robe, folds it up the way that's prescribed, uh, and puts his begging bowl away and sits down. Now, it does not say this in the... uh, It doesn't say this explicitly in the sutra, but when I read this, the impression I get is that Subhuti was just so astounded with the complete naturalness that Buddha did all of these regular activities. That he gets up, bows before a Buddha and says, tell me how a Bodhisattva walks, how a Bodhisattva stands, how a Bodhisattva tames his mind, because he sees there's something extraordinary in the ordinariness with mm. which Buddha does this. That, that, that's how the, that, and so now you get the Diamond Sutra mm. leading through this uh, as a response to those questions. But how does a Bodhisattva walk? How does a Bodhisattva stand? These are not deep questions. <laughs> in one sense. Yeah, in another uh, sense they are. Uh, incre- incredibly, yeah. So I think that's what your teacher's talking to. Yeah, and and in our tradition, you know, the the words like presence comes up yes. that when when you're fully inhabiting this place right now, just all of you are is there. That there's a quality of presence that is both ordinary because it's not calling attention to itself, and yet uh, extraordinary because it's so complete. Well, when you're fully present that way. Quite literally, you are not aware of yourself. Yeah. And you can yeah, there you we want go. To bring up the subject of yeah, self. Well, again. Oh, there we go. Well, the small self. <laughs> Smallest self. Yeah. So, so, um, so let me then ask uh, Ken if um, to to uh, invoke again the word imagination. Yes. Um, is is there a way, or how would people? How might people? Imagine walking as a bodhisattva walks, talking as a bodhisattva talks, folding a robe as a bodhisattva folds a robe. Is imagination of any utility in in that endeavor? That's a non-trivial question. Um, for some people it could be Mm -hmm. for other people it would degenerate into emulation 
In fact, that, that's probably a constant danger even for some people who, for whom it could be beneficial. Yes. Uh, that's why I say it's a non-trivial question. The <clears throat> Buddha starts to, uh, takes the last question first. How does a, a, a Bodhisattva, and translated as control, on that, mm-hmm. probably be tamed into Tame the mind, or something. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I don't like that translation either, but uh, and I, I think that there's a, a point which is very much in line with our discussion is that the way of walking and the way of standing is a result of coming to a different relationship yeah. with mind, with how you experience the world. Uh, and that's also a very important point in, was to, uh, in my own path was to learn to differentiate between instruction and actual methods when involved and the results of practicing those methods. If I, going back to uh, the student, uh, the Fox News Republican student, if I told him, you need to develop loving kindness for Bill Clinton (laughs) and you need to cool your ardor for uh, George Bush, that would have gone nowhere because I would have been describing results and there is no practice there. Mm-hmm. Instead, I gave them very specific methods, mm-hmm. such as imagine George Bush doing this, imagine Bill Clinton doing this. And, I mean, and I'm just using those examples because there's many other instances that he's yeah, working yeah. with. But th- that was the one that... Well, that, and that, <coughs> that, that, what's interesting is, is it, so this is, I wouldn't call this transactional as much as it's... Uh, I don't know what the right word is. But well, well it, you're it, talking about skillful means. Yeah, but, really. but, but it does it does speak to the way the process works, and it, it gets back to the, what we were saying earlier about imagination. That by doing by using your imagination in this way, it allows a let us say an un, a stuckness in the heart to become unstuck. Yes, and that's a precursor to the ability to function in the way that we're describing in a unconditioned way. Exactly. Because and, there's a conditioning that is a stuckness yeah. that that we're exercising. I, th- I, I think that's very well said, and this allows me to respond to Rob's question in a slightly different way. <clears throat> that if it's an exercise in imagination, then it could be a path. Mm-hmm. Imagining how, you know. Right. But for many people, as we noted, it becomes simply a process of emulation. And that is not a path. Or that's a, that's a, e- even that is a path for some people, but it, it, it gets very tricky because it's so easy for it to become dogmatic. Then. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the thing that was coming up for me is the, uh, the subject matter um, uh, of a book that, um, and I'm trying to remember um, the name of it, but uh, it's not coming to me at the moment. But the, 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 the problem is formulated in that book as Christianity enjoins us to love your neighbor as yourself. And it doesn't give you oh, offhand... Lost Christianity. Lost Christianity, thank by you. By Jacob Needleman. By Jacob Needleman. Oh, and, it do, and it does not... It doesn't fill it doesn't, in the gap. It, it doesn't, fill in the gap. It doesn't give you the, the method, the okay, practice. No, no, and the, this, is, this is not just a problem in Christianity. Yeah. No, mean, no, no. I have heard so many talks by Buddhist teachers where people think that they're listening to instruction 
when what is actually happening is the teacher is simply describing results. Right. Yeah, and that's and that's a that's an important point because and you know to elaborate on Jacob Needleman's point from this is the frustration with modern Christianity is that it will give you these injunctions about loving your neighbors yourself, but there's but what's lost is the actual practice, the practical work that can get you from where you are now to that place, and that practice is more along the lines of. In some ways, what you were describing with the practice that you yeah. you uh, gave your uh, uh, student that that there are, there are ways there is a way to do that. But when you just tell someone, the problem is it goes in the head, and and we're really talking about a transformation of the heart, and that requires this imaginal work. Whereas if it just goes in the head, it's like you try as you might, nothing's going to happen. Well, the, uh, and you're, you're absolutely right. The worst. That, uh, you know, the worst or the best that can happen is that a different belief system, that you impose a different belief system. On you get yourself. mechanical morality. Exactly. You know, yeah. you know where, where basically I, I now <clears throat> use this injunction as a club to, you know, uh, hit people on the head and <laughs> tell myself. Including yourself. Including <laughs> yourself. Yeah. I, I mean, when I first started working with people, this is back in the uh, early 90s, individually. I almost went out to buy a waste paper basket and a dozen baseball bats. So when people came to see me, I said, well, you know, you could just go over and pick up a bat and beat yourself over the head rather than tell me all about it because that's all you're doing. <laughs> it's interesting that we don't um, have the same degree of uh, internalized uh, self-hatred uh, around like, say, doing yoga. I mean, when you do yoga, you know, you have this idea that, oh, I need, I, I'm not practiced, I need to stretch. But we don't, we don't translate that to the uh, emotional domain. Like, I have emotional work to do. I have to stretch. I have to learn to stretch my heart in order to... A lot of the yoga teachers I know talk about that. About what? That you're, not, that you're bad for, not, <laughs> for being tight? No, no, that you have emotional work to do. No, I, I, I'm drawing the distinction that, uh, you know, we have this, and it's probably a consequence of this lost element of the dominant religious uh, paradigm in our culture, which is we're told all these moral instructions, but we're not, we're not really given the tools to transform ourselves into alignment with that. And you're, and you're, you're using the metaphor of stretching. Yeah, oh, I'm using yeah, the metaphor of stretching. Okay. And then I'm saying that, that, you know, we, we, if you do any sort of body work, you do have the notion that you have to, you know, there, there's work to be done in order yeah. to recondition the body, but we don't have that about our hearts. It's almost as though how you are is... Uh, Permanent, you know, it's like. <laughs> well, again, this this goes back to uh, two of the themes we've, we've touched on: uh, the death of allegorical thinking and the uh, concomitant lack of imagination. Yeah. The results. No, because I mean, a lot of people. I mean, I, I, if you read Frederick Douglass's. Uh, biography, and a lot of other uh, people who are who have been extraordinary in uh, their uh, the social change. Mm -hmm. Frederick Douglass, against all 
accepted protocols at that time, uh, learned how to read. And he'd read a, I think it was a Quaker on a book on slavery and how unjust it was. And it just opened his mind and he, he could imagine for the first time a different future for his people. Hmm. And it's just like, and it was the opening of the imagination. And it was interesting, a friend of mine suggested that I read Lonesome Dove, Larry McMurtry's novel. I went, why do you want me to read this? I, I did. And I'm very glad I did, because I don't know how Larry McMurtry did this, but I, for the first time in my life, got what it might be like to be rather stupid or limited mental capacity or um, have very little imagination or both because so many of the people who were just you know driving cattle and things like that they had extremely small worlds and very limited ability lemons dead education etc to deal with that so it's, their world was really really small and it was just like wow well, what would, what would it like to live in that world? <laughs> and, and, and how few possibilities there are. And I remember, maybe if you watch The Wire, I don't know whether you ever watched yeah, it. Yeah, I've watched it. There's a scene in which Cuddy, the boxing coach, is talking with a teenager who wants to learn how to fight. He's obviously not a fighter. And this is not the way for him to go. And uh, Cuddy says to him, I've learned that there is a whole other world out there. Uh, a world that you can't imagine at this point. You know, but it's there. And uh, the guy said, uh, the young teenager says, well, I can, I, I can sort of appreciate that, but how do you go from here to there? And Cuddy says, I have no idea. Because they're so trapped into the ghetto. Yeah. Things like that, they they can't imagine a way to get from A to B. So I, I think this, you know, on a lot of levels, this imagination is is important, and uh, it's uh, it's certainly within the spiritual realm. But it's also, I mean, if you going back to the three worlds thing, it's very important in terms of social change. But yeah. equally, it's important in terms of science. Every one of the great scientific breakthroughs was an exercise in imagination. And, and so many experiments are the result of, you know, the design of the experiments is, like, well, what if we do this? <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's, it's uh, uh, amazing uh, how imagination, you know, how rich it is. It's like it, it's a source of creativity. Of the cre- it, it, it is the expression of creative uh, of the creative impulse. I think you know that that's. And I, I guess I, I what was arising as you were saying that is uh, you know our social and political world today is so fraught because there's so little imagination on either extreme. Not only that. You are so punished, if not by the other side, then by your own side, for any exercise in imagination. Yeah. Well, here, here it seems to me uh, one, one way to configure the start of the process 
of engaging imagination um, is simply to ask a question that you haven't asked before. And, and that's where it begins. So... I think that's excellent. Um, uh, but but um, that's, that's true in, in science as well, yes. as, as, as you've just been pointing out. It's true in the whole horizontal realm as much... Why do we have not, to live this way? Yes, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. We don't. We don't. We don't. We don't have to. You know, in terms of the most mundane things, we don't have to use plastic to wrap every bit of food that we buy in a supermarket. For example, it's as simple as that. We never did for the previous three hundred thousand years until a few decades ago, um, and yet now we are. Creating all this all this plastic pollution that's that's having consequences in the world. So, gosh, why can't we do it a little differently? That's it starts with a question like that. Is as simple as simple as that. And then that a question is very can be very productive to the mind, um, but it also unleashes the emotional or opens the emotional realm as well. I think that I, I agree with you completely, but I'm going to ask you another, a different question. Oh dear, I can't imagine what. <laughs> <laughs> what advice do you have for people who follow, take your suggestion, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, to do with the inevitable blowback they're going to get? Boy, that's a good. That's a uh, because I'd like to take it the step further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just well, leave it that the imagination is good. It is. It's wonderful. But yeah, there's also the practicality of living, living your suggestion in today's world. Yeah. Well, that's that's a. Yeah. Uh, there, you have to make a choice. I mean, you have to make a choice. Uh, uh, what what you're going to serve? Are you going to serve the truth? Oh, I don't think it's so black and white. I think skillful means comes in here somewhat. And well, that's, there, that's actually what I was asking Ron So the about. other, well, okay, well, the other piece I'd say is that uh, humor is uh, uh, part of it as well. Like, if you, if you don't take yourself seriously, it's hard for other people to take you seriously in a certain kind of way. And um, if you get blowback, but you, you know, just let it pass through you, is that a way of addressing it? Sometimes, definitely, Rob. Well, I'm just trying. I, I'm, I was reflecting on my own in the in in the realm of science, my own question that I asked, which created a little sort of mini subfield in uh, the realm of anthropological archaeology, which was to ask: Can can we? examine and imagine other possible ways of, of, of uh, customs around sexuality in different contexts in the past, in different or, you know, geographic areas, et cetera, et cetera. And I went around, we went around and asked, you know, my colleague and I, who I, you know, my, my um, uh, partner in arms, went around and asked a bunch of prominent People and some people weren't interested in the question. That's that's one thing mm-hmm. that happened. 
you know, they weren't offended by it. I think possibly a few people might have been, but they, um, you know, they just shrugged it off. Uh, but other people, really, it sparked something for them. Because we were asking a question that they'd never asked, never been asked, about the material um, evidence that they were incredibly familiar with in whatever given arena um, they had worked in. And they got excited. So there's all this evidence that they hadn't put it to any use in this area. In this area, exactly right. Yeah. And I, and I suspect there's a lot more of that possibility out there. I mean, you, you're, you, you're, but you posed the question of blowback. And, and that's, um, there's going to be people who disagree with you, well, that, even that, asking a question. Well, <clears throat> as both of you were answering this, I also thought of my own answer to it. Mm-hmm. I would suggest you read Trickster Makes This World. Because when you ask a question that nobody else has asked, mm-hmm. or you ask a question about the way things you know, why are we doing it this way? Can we do something different? You're already moving into trickster territory. Interesting. Um, that, make, that, uh, that, that makes yeah, sense I, to I, me. I, I, a friend of mine in Los That's Angeles... That's why coyote is so important in Native American... Uh, uh, well, yeah, a friend of mine in LA uh, recommended uh, Lewis Hyde's book, Trickster Makes This World, um, to me. And uh, so I read it. And it was uh, revelatory and deeply disturbing to me. It was revelatory because I had not appreciated that as a translator, and not just as a translator of words, but as a translator from one culture to another, I was actually operating in the trickster archetype far more than I had ever given consideration Mm. of. I was stealing from one culture and interpreting it and placing it in another culture and changing the balance between the two, which is exactly what Trickster does. Hmm. And uh, and this is why I say whenever you institute change, you're going to get some blowback. Sure. Uh, there's dangers to the exercise of imagination. That's what my question is really. Okay. Uh, you know, things don't necessarily work out in a good way. Sure. And I think anybody who takes your suggestion of asking why do we a question that nobody else has asked should be prepared that they may be stepping into a very different relationship well, to the world. And you know, countless people they would ask a question and it has completely changed their lives in ways that they never expected it to. Right. And and um you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend Someone in, in in Afghanistan going up to a Taliban member and asking the wrong <laughs> question, right? There, there are, um, and 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 the truth is, before nor, nor, nor would you in a number of graduates departments in American universities. Absolutely, right, right. that is that is that is absolutely <laughs> true. Although I, you know, I'm thinking, and even in the case of Afghanistan, the uh, the question's been asked now, and uh, that's already. Uh, it's in the works. It's in the works. I mean, it's like uh, there are uh, protests, and you know, and then you, you, even the Taliban. It's not really that many people. You know, it's like the question's out there, and you, you can't put the genie back in the bottle in the same way. 
Um, well, I mean, the, the Pandora's box uh, story is, is, is asking, what's in that box? <laughs> Look out! <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> oh, yes, I do. <laughs> Well, that seems to be a big part of uh, 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 human, I mean, that's why curiosity, human curiosity is both lauded and um, warned against in certain contexts. And I get it. I get it. Yeah. So I I just think if we make any suggestions that people are listening to this, it's, it's fair to... Put the warnings. Put a warning. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's one thing. I mean, it's one thing to ask a question to yourself and to use your imagination in the way that we described. Uh, that that can have changes. You should say there's one thing. No, there isn't one thing. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't matter. You're right. Cause that, <laughs> you, you ask this question and you go, hmm, yes. Well, yeah, it's true. Because if you, if you start to change the way you feel in a way that uh, that can have all sorts of consequences with the world you're in. Yeah, I mean, uh, I had uh, I had my house repented, repainted uh, last year, I guess, and the uh, <clears throat> but it was in the middle of the uh, virus, and the painter. Uh, you know, his, his crew showed up and they were all masked, etc. <clears throat> but uh, we were discussing the, ep- the pandemic <clears throat> and he's, he said to me, he just couldn't believe the uh, wreckage of so many relationships among mm. people he knew, mm. husbands and wives and things like that because of the different responses. Because of the different responses to the pandemic, or, or yes. I thought I thought it was going to be because suddenly <clears throat> people have to spend a lot more time with each other. No, no, different responses to the pandemic. Huh. Just tearing uh, of people taking it seriously fr- and other people friendships and families apart. Wow. And, <clears throat> and and we're, we're seeing this. I mean, we're seeing this in the whole country. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, you know, you start going in a different direction. There's no telling where it's going to end up. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's. I mean, for myself, I, 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 I was called to go in those different directions, and I learned to live with the consequences. But ah. uh, well, me. but that's this is this. Uh, so you've brought back in calling. Yes, again. Yeah, well, because I don't know. I don't know any uh, well, word. I mean, why does somebody ask a question? Uh, it's not why they ask a question. It's why do they choose to exercise their imagination and follow where that takes them? So, so to get back to my own example, I mentioned a, mo- a moment ago. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that I chose the particular graduate program that I chose to go into, even though I was accepted to a number of other places. Um, for, for a number of reasons, convenience, uh, if nothing else, but but also, and me maybe primarily because I had the intuition that the particular place I would go, I would not receive the negative blowback, at least at the level that I might get at some of the other institutions, and I didn't 
choose to operationalize asking the question of others for a number of years even after that. So, um, I mean, I have never actually thought of it quite this way before. So you were strategic. I was, I was, I was strategic, and and and, it, and well, uh, you know, I'll take it even further back to when I was five years old, and I knew that my fascination with men's bodies ought not to be articulated um, <laughs> to anyone else. <laughs> I, 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 I knew that very clearly. So there's a, there's a. Uh... That, that strategy was way back. A wariness that had been... Yes, absolutely. So I want, absolutely. I want to... Uh, uh, there's an issue that I, I, I see with this, because uh, there's something that doesn't feel quite complete for me with the idea of calling, and and that's that people can imagine all sorts of things. And, and so if I think about some of the fringe elements in our society today that are given to conspiracy theories they're using their imagination in a way and in some respects they might even uh, you know say they're called to do this because there's negative consequences to many of their relationships by doing this and and so someone listening to this might you know critique the way we're framing the notion of like the calling and imagination because there's other examples of the use of imagination that are seem to be destructive, antisocial, and not in alignment with what we might call objective truth. Although that's a, you know, that, not, I, don't, I don't want to go into that that whole. But but right. let me jump in here because I mean I, I take your point and I think it's a good one. But uh, I also want to suggest that when you actually echo someone else's articulation of their supposed imagination, that's not the same. That thing that we're talking about, at least that I was talking about. Well, right, but I want to distinguish that. I, 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 I'm, I'm glad you brought this point up. I, I think it is appropriate. Um, and it's difficult. I, I, again, it's a non trivial question. Right. Uh, because uh, one person's madness is another person's calling. Uh, some time ago, you circulated a uh, summary of uh, people who uh, accept conspiracy theories. And I think in response, I pointed out how deeply alienation of some form or other permeated. So uh, I think that's very important. Um, Where is it coming from in you? Now, speaking for myself, I can say that a certain amount of my spiritual urge, call it whatever you want, probably did come from some sense of alienation. So again, that may be a factor which actually impels people to ask questions. Uh, the advice in Buddhism is seek out good friends and avoid bad friends. <laughs> and that may sound very trite and trivial, but actually I think it's very important. I don't think it's trite or trivial at all. I think it is foundational. Yeah, that, that, that you, you want to surround or have in your circle uh, 
people who have different perspectives whom you respect. And actually, in keeping with today's world, I would say uh, one of the more important groups to have in your circle are people who are older, a lot older than you. Hmm. Because they've been on the planet longer, they've seen things, and they understand how things yeah. evolve and change. And that can be a very useful perspective. My teacher was, I was in my early 20s, he was 40 years older than me. Uh, and uh, over 40, actually. Uh, and, uh, and from a completely different culture. I mean, he, yeah. before he left Tibet, he had never heard about the Second World War. Hmm. He'd heard rumors about the First World War, but he had never heard of the Second World War. That here is a person of wisdom and understanding and attainment, etc., etc., that commanded respect. And, and so you listen, but in order to listen to such a person, you had to listen with parts of you that were very, very undeveloped at the time. Uh, so I, I think that having people like that, that, you're, that you have access to and will listen to, is probably the most uh, effective means to avoid going down the route that you were describing. Yeah, I think that's uh, a good response. And, 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 I, and I suppose it's, it's the same. Having people that are younger than you is probably a good idea too. I, I, I you know, now now being at a more advanced age myself, I can I can underscore that that I get something out of. The younger people that I meet at our So what we're really store. talking about is keeping your circle intergenerational. I think that can be really helpful. And to keep it broad to have and different broad. influences. Yes. I, I think, yeah. I, I think yeah. it's important that we challenge ourselves and not that I think one of the, the, the biggest ah, yes. risks of the the construction of social media now is that it permits uh, us to insulate ourselves and to form these epistemic bubbles where we don't actually challenge our beliefs and are reinforced in our uh, points of view. Yes, I, I think I think you're exactly right. So I, I suppose my suggestion was coming from that perspective. Yeah. But, but, uh, but it has to be tempered with the fact that these people need to be out of what you refer to as an epistemic bubble. Right. Uh, which, which we had more of when people mingled more yeah, in, yes. in person, but we have much less of now today. Yeah, I think that it's an interesting point that the peculiarity of the pandemic actually accentuated um, uh, this isolation because people's means of communication were suddenly much more optional and, and, and uh, we weren't forced into situations. I mean, this is why, you know, the, the great, you know, the, the working environment that's so central to most Americans is actually useful in that you often are well, the, forced into being with people who are very different points of view and, and to be in accord with them. This goes back to Putnam's book, Bowling Alone in America. Bowling Alone? Yeah, huh. because yeah. he wrote this book, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, in you, which you've he, spoken of it before. I, yeah, I, I'm not familiar with the book uh, itself. In which uh, he is uh, decrying the uh, dissipation 
of these uh, places where people met across political and religious divides, like in bowling leagues at work, where they weren't discussing work and and things like that. They were just bowling together, and they would talk about politics and talk about this, and there would be Jews and Catholics and Protestants all in the same mix, all talking with each other. And so you got all of these different yeah. perspectives. Well, well, so, you know, uh, your, your, your suggestion a moment ago about uh, uh, cultivating friends yes. um, is, is echoed so many times in the Buddhist suttas, the, the, Pali, the Pali suttas. Um, and yet I'm also hearing that, that we want to, in fact not only limit ourselves to people who, with whom we share a common aim, but also want to at least get some experience with an exposure to alternative views, alternative ways of, of seeing the world. Yeah. So, I think we... Rob has to go, and uh, I do. Uh, but we are also just about at, at the end of our time, so I think we can uh, draw this to a uh, close. So any uh, uh, last words of wisdom? Any? Uh, well, no last words of wisdom. I've got a lot out of this conversation, and I've, I've enjoyed it very much. The, uh, I appreciate your receptivity to some of the stuff that I put out, but the uh, I, I didn't when we first started this, I didn't know it was going to center around imagination to the extent that it has. And that's basically highlighted the importance of that. Uh, and uh, in a, as a possible way forward in today's world. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm... Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I, I agree. I, I... Yeah, I'll echo that as well. It's, uh, I mean, over the last 10 years, or maybe 15 years, I've come to deeply appreciate how um, productive that, um, that faculty is. Mm-hmm. And um, I used to discount it. So um, thank you for such a wonderful conversation. Yes, thank you for joining us uh, for another uh, uh, great conversation on the mystical positivist. Well, you're very welcome. My pleasure. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with returning guest Ken McLeod, in which we discussed the role of imagination in spiritual practice, the distinction between the vertical and horizontal dimensions of life, and the modern struggle to imagine the vertical dimension, how we might imagine a non-transactional embodiment of spiritual practice, and much more. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org, He is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.